I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast where we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of November 2022, and uh, we are in the midst of our No Nut November event month. Uh, Essentially, what No Nut November refers to is uh, all month long, uh, we have been reviewing uh, erotic thrillers, uh, films from American films, very specifically American films uh, from the subgenre of the erotic thriller. Um, if you're not familiar with this, uh, the erotic thriller uh, was kind of a big deal in terms of uh, box office success uh, during this period of Hollywood history. Uh, so Kyle and I thought it would be really interesting to go back and take a look at some of the I guess the more famous or noteworthy of those films uh, from that period. And uh, in case you haven't noticed, uh, Kyle is once again not present. Uh, He has some real life shit going on. Uh, So it's just going to be you and me again. Uh, And more than likely, much like last week, uh, this is probably going to be more of a discussion about the film rather than a review or a comprehensive front to back uh, analysis of the thing uh, so if you're not in for for that sort of experience uh, go ahead and turn off the podcast now I guess but um, that being said uh, to dispel the mystery as to what film it is I'm going to be reviewing here today uh, today I'm going to be reviewing uh, Philip Noyce's Sliver uh, from the year 1993 now I, I, I kick things off here uh, by saying some of the more we are going to be reviewing some of the more famous or successful or noteworthy of erotic thrillers um this is likely to be the one exception to that rule um being as as far as i understand uh, sliver is not an especially well-known um nor especially successful as far as i know it made its money back but it wasn't the juggernaut uh, that fatal attraction and basic instinct were both of those films made many times their budgets back Um, They were immensely successful, um, and they weren't exactly the most expensive films to produce either. Uh, The reason I'm covering Sliver today is, well, you know, I was caught off guard by the fact that November 2022 just happens to be a five-Tuesday week, um, which means five episodes for us uh, here at Catching Up on Cinema instead of four, Um, but also just because its connection um, to to the subgenre, like, like to the evolution, to the trajectory of the subgenre, as well as a lot of the major players of that subgenre, I think is worth examining, even if the film itself, as I said, is not especially noteworthy nor successful. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, and, and, and in fact, I said this last week, um, because this is a film that I had seen previously, um, it's not nearly on the same level as Fatal Attraction or Basic Instinct or many other erotic thrillers of the day. Um, But it occupies an interesting role in the trajectory of the subgenre in that it kind of represents the cresting of the wave, as it were. Um, So Basic Instinct, uh, I didn't really mention this like emphatically last week, but in a lot of ways, like just based on its, its level of success, you could almost point to that as almost being the point like the the pinnacle i guess of the erotic thriller boom of the late 80s and the through 
the early 90s. It wasn't a very long trend. Um, and in a lot of ways, you could point to Paul Verhoeven's basic instinct as being kind of the peak of it, where it's like in terms of excess, um, in terms of like lavish production design and just excess being the key word, um, and as well as in terms of box office return, it doesn't really get higher than that. Like there, there aren't many erotic thrillers from the day that were as loud colorful and crazy <laughs> as basic instinct as well as daring at least by american standards by puritanical american standards they do some like the eroticism in that film is played up to a degree uh, that you don't often see in mainstream american cinema and that was in 1992 and as i said basic instinct like just completely obliterated the box office like it, it did exceedingly well now this film, Sliver, the reason why I felt it would be interesting to talk about is just because this is literally Sharon Stone's next film. This is where she went immediately after that the immensely successful Basic Instinct, right, right seamlessly into another erotic thriller. Not only that, another erotic thriller written by Joe Esterhaus, who, as I said, is last week, um, is kind of like one of the he's like one of the most prominent voices and entities at work in terms of driving the success of this particular genre like he wasn't producing or directing these films but the people who were producing these films were gobbling up whatever scripts he put out like whatever shit he churned out as as crass and as vulgar as it was um producers wanted it and they were throwing millions of dollars at him in order to get these scripts and sliver was one of them um and remember we're talking about an era where basic instinct had just come out the year before and did wonderfully so i'm sure the producers of sliver were very very hopeful that joe esterhaus's work his writing um would bring them success as well um so this film and uh this is where <laughs> we transition um from uh, me just talking, uh, shooting from the hip uh, into me uh, running over the familiar names and faces um, at work behind the camera and in front of the camera. Uh, so all the people involved in the making of the film. Uh, the, for some reason, this is very natural for me uh, in terms of exploring this sort of thing. Um, so Sliver, uh, let's start up at the top, uh, is directed by Philip Noyce, um, who is by no means a household name. Um, he is an Australian filmmaker and probably one of the more noteworthy films on his filmography that you'll find is Dead Calm. Um, I seem to remember Kyle uh, having a few things to say about that film. It's a it's a psychological thriller um, and it stars Sam Neill, Nicole Kidman, and uh, one of my personal favorites, Billy Zane. Um, in addition to that, uh, he also made Blind Fury, uh, which is the kind of Zatoichi-esque uh, blind swordsman film starring uh, my favorite Dutchman or no uh, Paul Verhoeven's my favorite Dutchman probably uh, Rutger Hauer might be a close second um, as as the Zatoichi type figure um, Blind Fury is a lot of fun I, I watched that one on TV when I was a kid and uh, it's it's not it's not like classy it's not like high quality filmmaking but it's effective and it's fun 
Um, in addition to that, uh, Philip Noyce also has a couple of the Jack Ryan, uh, Tom Clancy adapted uh, films under his belt, most notably the, well, only the Harrison Ford starring ones, uh, Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. So that's a big fucking get uh, on his filmography. Um, like sandwiched between those two uh, was the release of Sliver, by the way. Um, so he was he was doing some he was doing like blockbuster films around the time Sliver came out. Um, and beyond that, the only movies of his that really jump out at me um, are The Saint with Val Kilmer, which I uh, I don't think is anybody's favorite film, <laughs> um, nobody's favorite spy film by any means, but. Um, I I know a couple people that have a soft spot for that one. Not me personally. I barely remember it. Um, he also did the Bone Collector, uh, Salt, uh, which I think both of those uh, feature Angelina Jolie. Uh, Salt I I don't think is a particularly great spy film either. Uh, I will point out that uh, I I like Leif Schreiber. Uh, anytime I get to see him, especially in like a physically demanding role, I'm always happy to see him. But um, the main thing that I took away from Salt was uh, James Newton Howard's work on it as a composer. Um, some of the music in Salt is kick fucking ass. Um, so if you're in the in the mood for like an espionage tinged uh, action score from the late twenty, uh, I think it's the two thousands. No, twenty ten. It looks like uh, maybe check that one out. And beyond that, it looks like he's kind of trailed off a little bit. Um, point is, Philip Noyce uh, is. <laughs> not a reason i don't think to to go see any films uh, i would describe his work his his filmography as like workman like like he's he's a hired gun i can't really point to a signature style um but none of those movies that i listed off are shot incompetently or, or edited incompetently they're just they're just movies man and sometimes that's what you need is somebody to give you something on time and on budget and i don't know if that's true um like among his filmography but uh point is the person directing this film is not at all somebody that carries much weight for me personally um some of the other folks involved though uh they they do so as i said this was written uh by joe esterhaus um and if we look at what he was up to at the time as i said for sharon stone uh this was her very next film following basic instinct uh for for our boy Joe, uh, funny enough, he has, um, and this is these are hard to come by. Uh, he has a Van Damme movie on his filmography uh, that I have not seen from the '90s. Uh, that those are few and far between. I, I've seen quite a few JCVD films in my day, um, but it's nowhere to run. Apparently, he wrote the screenplay for, um, followed very closely by Sliver. And then Showgirls and Jade, the one-two punch of Showgirls and Jade. Holy fucking shit. Like I said, he is kind of like the master of, of the genre from a writing standpoint. Um, but uh, beyond that, um, also from a production standpoint, I think one of the most important contributions to this film um, is absolutely Howard Shore, um, who, if you're not familiar... Um, Howard Shore is a film composer that gave us uh, The Lord of the Rings uh, and The Hobbit, uh, the scores for all of those films, as far as I know. Um, and he also is like one of the most common collaborators with uh, David Cronenberg. Like he's one of the most consistent 
uh, collaborators with David Cronenberg. And beyond that, he has worked with so many of the masters. Like, like we're talking Scorsese, Cronenberg. I mean, I already mentioned Peter Jackson, and Sidney Lumet. Like, like the man is a is kind of a, a living legend when it when it comes to like the world of film compositions and whatnot. Um, but uh, holy fucking shit, um, his a uh, his score for this movie. I don't know how much of it is him or if it's uh, like the musical supervisors or whoever or whoever has the job of of collecting the the rights to the mute like the licensed music that they play in the film the score for this film is heavily electronic and it is like the you can sum it up in one word enya It, it is enya to the extreme and i i like i had this bizarre um, like sense memory or the, like this like knee-jerk nostalgia reaction uh, to the opening moments of this film just because I just like as soon as the beat kicked in it goes and then the Gregorian chant starts as soon as that shit kicked in I was like oh my god I remember when the world sounded like this like I mean, I was like six at the time, but I I absolutely remember when when that shit was everywhere. When the world, when the, the quote world genre of musical like music in record stores was booming, and when you know shoulder pads and bright colors and MC Hammer pants were in, and when uh, everybody wore stupid fucking hats like berets and stuff. Like it 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 took me back to the early nineties and. Uh, the score for this film is very much that. Um, there, there's a lot of that kind of beat going on in the background. It's it's heavily electronic in sound, um, but it also has a lot of that world vibe to it, where the instrumentation is kind of all over the fucking place. There's a lot of like Zen flutes and uh, a lot of chanting, um, and then there's a lot of like uh, a lot a lot of a lot of like Nine Inch Nails esque music. Um, playing in the background I'm actually struggling to like check up on the bands that were involved in this because I'm not like a a huge mm, I'm not like a walking encyclopedia of of music and bands and whatnot Kyle's better about that especially about music um, from when we were young and whatnot but a lot of like there's a lot of massive attack that I picked up on um, but oddly enough, uh, UB40, <laughs> uh, UB40 plays, plays a role in, in the background of a lot of these, mo- a lot of these scenes, uh, much like in Speed 2, if memory serves. Um, very interesting choice. Uh, not sure, not sure that was the most appropriate, but that's what they went with. But yeah, Howard Shore's score for this film, um, if you actually have legitimate, like, memory and nostalgia of the era, it, it, I don't know. It sent a, it sent a shiver down my spine, like whoa, whoa! This takes me right back. Um, it's also quite good too. Like I, I'm I'm not bad mouthing it. I I just thought it was funny that I had such a visceral reaction to it. But um, moving on uh, to the to the cast of the film. Uh, so we have Sharon Stone, who we have, we've already profiled uh, last week. Um, she she as I said immediately segued into this film Uh, so she went directly from basic instinct into this so she went from being nominated for for acting awards 
um, and being in a film that made so much goddamn money uh, to being nominated for a Razzie um, <laughs> in a film that did okay. Like, it wasn't a failure or anything, but it, it didn't register with many people. Um, and then she would kind of fart around for a couple of years after this. Um, the Specialist is nobody's favorite Stallone movie. There is an uncomfortable sex scene in a shower in that film that's <laughs> like, you know, I have a lot of respect for Stallone in, in a variety of ways. Um, and one of those ways is that I think even he, like as much hubris as that man had, um, as, as high on himself as he was and has been, um, it, at various phases in his career at a certain point like in the late 2000s like around the time he was doing his comeback like post get carter <laughs> um like in the uh rocky balboa and uh rambo and expendables era of his career a bullet to the head era of his career i think he got wise to the fact that he has a particular visage and and physique that like is great for action and whatnot, but I don't. I think even he could admit it's like I don't think anybody wants to see me naked, man. Like, like I don't think anybody wants to see my butt anymore. Like, there's like I noticed that he did. He stopped like having romantic scenes of any kind. Like, like very noticeably in that Expendables movie, the first Expendables, like the the lady that they save. Um, they they like hint that like maybe they could have affection for each other and he does like there's nothing it's like it's like we're not even gonna hug because it's just like i don't want to do that no more i don't think anybody wants to see me do that no more um but the specialist that was in 1994 and it was starring opposite sharon stone you know only a couple of years removed from basic instinct it's like this is the lady who during this phase of her career was like her 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 thing was kind of to get naked and like unfortunately like she's done other things since then but during this phase of her career that was kind of what she was known for um so it was like expected i guess that they would do that kind of scene but no that is like that's one of those stallone movies that's like like god have mercy on your soul if you decide to put that on at a party or something it's like dude like get, the man has so many other trashy action films that everybody can enjoy. Can we just not do this? Like, I don't need to see that man fucking a shower. Like, like really? Come on. Um, and then uh, The Quick and the Dead and Casino. So working with Sam Raimi and and uh, Martin Scorsese uh, would follow very shortly after that. So she, Sliver was just a not even a speed bump. Like, uh, like it's not a very good movie. She does very little for it. Um but it wasn't exactly like career suicide or anything like this didn't tank her career by any means like she was only on she was only on an upward trajectory following that so barely a speed bump for her um the other uh leading member of the cast uh, who also gets naked in this film it is an erotic thriller by the way so we do see a lot of naked people we see sharon stone naked and we also see billy baldwin william baldwin naked uh, he's kind of our male lead um and looking at his filmography was interesting because uh, he was very early in his career. Um, he's, of course, part of the Baldwin family. So he started, he got a running fucking start. Um, only two years, three years prior to this, he was in Flatliners. He was in Born on the Fourth of July. Um, funny enough, I think Tom Berenger was in that as well. So maybe the two of them were friendly. Um, 
but he was in Joel Schumacher's Flatliners in 1990 in a very prominent role. Um, Backdraft was a huge role for him, a huge movie for everyone involved in 91. Um, so he was he he got a like a, a Steven Seagal esque launch to his career. Like nobody got as 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 powerful a launch uh, to their career as Steven Seagal, getting just handed the keys to the castle in the form of a starring role, a starring vehicle, uh, if you will, um, in the form of Above the Law. Um, but as a Baldwin, and you know, in a few short years, working with you know Joel Schumacher and Ron Howard in a movie starring literally everyone <laughs> um, to to this film. Um, this was early in his career, but this was a big deal for him as well. I think he was oddly miscast, if you ask me, because he's meant to be kind of like aloof and mysterious and handsome and whatnot. But I never. <laughs> I, I never look at I never look at William Baldwin as as being conventionally handsome. I mean, Alec Baldwin in the '90s, that man, that was a handsome man. Uh, you know, I mean, we're talking like like Hunt for Red October, Alec Baldwin, or uh, The Shadow, Alec Baldwin, when he's got his hair all greased back, and uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin, again, hair all greased back in a suit. That man was handsome. That was a, that was a very handsome man. Billy Baldwin. He got a big old schnoz. He's got like weird, like weird eyebrows. He always looks a little confused. <laughs> like I, I, in this, I, I don't think he was cast particularly well. Um, and he never strikes me as. And, and just, I'm not shitting on the man. I actually like him in most things I see him, and I, I find him to be affable as a screen presence. He, he never strikes me as intellectual on film. Like to me, like, like. Stephen Baldwin is like he's he's like he's Biodome. Stephen Baldwin is Biodome. Like like Stephen Baldwin should make another movie just called Stephen Baldwin is Biodome. Very similar uh, to the naming convention of uh, Steven Seagal films. Stephen Baldwin is Biodome. To me, that's that's what he should be doing with his career. Like he should be Barney Rubble. Like Stephen Baldwin is great as as being a stoner or a, just a dumbass. Like he could he could easily just show up in a Dumb and Dumber movie and probably probably do all right. He wouldn't be nearly as good as Jeff Daniels, but he would do all right. William Baldwin kind of has a similar skill set, just not even as good, I guess. Like he's not he doesn't come across as as dumb or or as confused. <laughs> uh, and Daniel Baldwin is just puffy Alec Baldwin, which is just unfortunate. And then there's Adam Baldwin, who's, of course, the false Baldwin. He is not actually part of the Baldwin family. He just happens to also be named Baldwin. Um, also, apparently not a cool guy. I've heard some I've, I've heard he's kind of an asshole on the Twitter. Um, but but yeah, as far as William Baldwin is concerned, uh, this is very early in his career during the, the golden era, because um Unlike some of the other actors in this film, he didn't exactly have the best longevity. Um, kind of similar to Steven Seagal, I guess. I get he he got it all done early, and then after after the wave crested, he he's as far as I understand still a working actor, but like he's he's no longer doing like Hollywood level films. Like he's very much like a direct to video guy, but. Um, being as I'm talking to myself here and just trying to amuse myself and keep the momentum flowing, I am going to take a pit stop here to just point out that I noticed a, a funny thing about uh, William Baldwin's career, like his filmography. Um, two different things here. So, so one, uh, 
a lot of the titles of his movies are just are just plain weird and can also be like viewed as like double entendres or something. So we have in 1996 a film called Curdled, which is not just an unpleasant word in the English language. <laughs> um, then I'll also point out that uh, oh by the way he's in he's in Virus. Uh, from 1999, uh, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and also Donald Sutherland, who was also in Backdraft. Um, I actually like Virus. Uh, Kyle has asked me about that one a couple of times. Um, I, I've never, I, I've never thought of it as like a strong recommend, uh, which is why it's never been on Catching Up on Cinema. Um, but I actually did see that movie back in 1999. It was a family rental. I think my mom brought that one home on VHS, and we did watch it, and I didn't mind it. I thought it was kind of neat. Um, so that's a someday. But um, getting back to what I was saying, like uh, like the titles of some of his movies are just... <laughs> uh, he has a movie called Double Bang, uh, which is in no way a double, uh, like a, a, a porno title, um, and f- followed up immediately by One-Eyed King, which which is mildly suggestive to say the least um but beyond that uh, we also have a movie that the title just made me laugh just because it's it's called you stupid man <laughs> it reminds me of that line from uh was it plan nine uh, from outer space <laughs> it's like your stupid minds stupid stupid it's it's from 2002 and it's simply called you stupid man Oh, hey, it's got David Crumholtz. Numbers. It's got numbers in it. Um, and I also, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to taper this off now just by saying that um, go ahead and look up the uh, the cover art for the film Art Heist uh, starring Ellen Pompeo from the year 2004, and you will find um, Ellen Pompeo looking like uh, <laughs> somebody <laughs> somebody just called her, her dog ugly or something. And then William Baldwin just looks like somebody just farted in his Cheerios. <laughs> like this face he's making on the cover for Art Heist is delightful. Um, anyway, that's enough of uh, William Baldwin. Um, so let's uh, keep on rolling through the cast. We also have Tom Berenger, um, who this is post-platoon Tom Berenger, post-Major League, but I think pre-Major League 2 and pre-Endless uh, uh, Sniper sequels. Because if you're not aware, Tom Berenger did a... Oh, funny enough. He did a little film uh, in the same year as Sliver uh, called Sniper. Also with Billy Zane. Uh, my boy Billy Zane. The connections. Revolutions. This is why this is fun for me. Uh, he did a little film called Sniper in the year 1993. And I don't know why I sound like Jerry Seinfeld right now. <laughs> um, but... Um, if you're not aware of this sort of thing, and I f- f- fucking hope you're not, uh, because like I, 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 I bear this particular cross. I, I watch the shitty direct-to-video film, so you don't have to. I'm that man on that wall. You need me on that, and trust me, you need me on that wall. Um, Tom Berenger has done like six or seven of these sniper fucking films. They keep making these movies because like I I know for a fact that all you have to do to sell a direct-to-video film is make sure that there's a gun on the cover. (laughs) Just make sure there's someone brandishing a firearm on the cover of your film and some asshole out there will rent it. Um, And 
as it as it stands, as far as I know, there are like six or seven sniper fucking films, and all they have to do to title these things is call it sniper colon something or other, and that's kind of that. Um, and if again, if you're not aware, they have been making these consistently <laughs> since 1993. I'm gonna I'm fuck it. I'm, uh, you're in here with me, goddammit. You're gonna you're I'm gonna say words and you're gonna listen. So I'm just gonna list them all off. So we have Sniper from 1993 with my boy Billy Zane. Uh, Sniper Two from 2002, um, which oh hey has uh, Bokeem Woodbine, uh, who is everybody's favorite. Everybody loves Bokeem Woodbine. Still a working actor. Still very good. Uh, we have Sniper Three from 2004. Uh, oh hey, Byron Mann is in this one. I like Byron Mann. We all like Byron Mann. He was a uh, Ryu. Uh, in the 1994 Street Fighter live-action film. Uh, it's, that's something. Uh, we have Sniper, colon, Reloaded from 2011, uh, which uh, looks like on the cover has Billy Zane in it. Uh, I'm pretty sure he died in that first Sniper film. Uh, I think so, if memory serves. Uh, we have Sniper, colon, Legacy uh, from 2014, uh, starring... Uh, just Tom Berenger and a bunch of people who I, I absolutely do not recognize their names. We have Sniper, colon, Ghost Shooter from 2016. Also with Billy Zane. Um, and the uh, uh, <laughs> the Allstate guy, President Allstate. Uh, the president from the TV show 24, as well as the spokesman uh, for Allstate Insurance. Uh, this one does not appear to have uh, Tom Berenger, but most assuredly does have Billy Zane. Uh, we have Sniper, colon, Ultimate Kill from 2017. Uh, once again, featuring Billy Zane and as well as Tom Berenger. Okay, so we got him back for this one. He, he dipped out of 2016, but he came back for 2017. And then uh, we have Sniper, Assassin's End, Assassin's End from 2020, uh, also featuring Tom Berenger. Uh, no Billy Zane, though, as far as I can tell. And believe it or not, we are not fucking done because apparently Sniper, colon, Rogue Mission uh, is due out for release in 2022. In fact, I'm going to do some swift Googling uh, because, goddammit, the people, they got to know when does Sniper, or excuse me, Sniper, <laughs> colon, Rogue Mission come out. Um, it looks like it's, uh, I don't actually know the release date, but it does look like this movie exists and is scheduled to come out. Unfortunately, I'm not seeing any of the legacy cast members I listed in the credits for this one. Uh, so you're unfortunately no Tom Berenger or Billy Zane. And it's funny because I actually really do like both of those guys. Uh, Billy Zane and Tom Berenger both work for me on different levels. Billy Zane I've just always found to be very, very affable. I think it's because I saw, well, Titanic he was cool in. Uh, I mean, he was an asshole, but he was really cool at being an asshole. Uh, great wig, great wig. Wonderful widow's peak. Um, the man has many great wigs, but, you know, these days I prefer seeing him without him. Um, also, eyebrow acting cannot be emphasized enough. The man's entire acting school of acting methodology is based on eyebrows. And goddamn, that man has fabulous eyebrows. Uh, Tom Berenger is always just kind of like a 
go-to like scruffy like middle america tough guy like he he's easily like a he's he's what i guess kevin costner could have been if he was not quite as handsome um and you know picked shittier films <laughs> um but as a, as an actor i've i've always found tom berenger to be just fine like like I, i've seldom seen him turn in a straight up poor performance it's just like i don't know if it's his agent or it's like his image or something uh in hollywood maybe it's politics that could most certainly be part of it i don't know i haven't looked into it but um thing i'm trying to emphasize here is that like i, I joke about the man's involvement in the sniper film sniper films but um for the most part i like him in most things i see him in um and he's fine in this movie as well um the main takeaway that you're going to find uh with sliver is that it's nobody's best work absolutely not like it is absolutely nobody's best work uh i will point out that uh, we also have a, a a couple of uh character actor heavies uh like like power players here that like show up um that anybody who's a fan of this era of cinema will most certainly recognize we have martin landau um who is wonderful in everything and and has done everything like his career has been all over the place as far as i know he passed away um we also have cch pounder um who is a lovely character actor that well it's actually hard to classify her as a character actor but she's just a, a woman of incredible presence uh, she she carries authority <laughs> like every t- every time she walks onto the set you your eyes gravitate to her partially because her facial features are incredibly loud like like everything like everything about her face co- like projects sternness and 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 steadiness um but in addition to that she also has you know these these big eyes and like this very particular speech cadence and voice that makes her instantly memorable uh, but she shows up in here for a couple of scenes. But um, okay, so let's talk about the movie itself for just a couple minutes here, because I, I'm honestly on my way out of this conversation. Like I'm, st- I've got one foot out the door now. Um, so the movie uh, is an erotic thriller, which is why we're talking about it today. But like from a thematic standpoint, it has, and and this is something that my uh, the girlfriend actually has pointed out I, I say maybe too often about films where we actually did watch this one together it was a rewatch for me but we watched it together the other day and um we, neither of us liked it very much we both thought the ending in particular was terrible which is something that we I, I will talk about in detail because it's very very important uh, to the film like as it stands um she she pointed out that I, I have this thing that I say about movies every once in a while that's it had it had a lot of great ideas like it had a lot of good ideas and she was like what what exactly do you mean by that and and are you defending the film and I had to clarify and say like no actually I I'm I'm working on evaluating films based on what they are but rather than what I would like them to be or what I what I think they could be if they were tweaked. Um, I, I, ha- I am guilty of that from time to time of, uh, I don't know, trying to rewrite the film in my head as I'm watching it. Um, this movie didn't warrant that for me. <laughs> it's just not good enough. Um, 
but what I meant by that in like in this context um, it had a lot of good ideas was that there's a there's a theme of invasion of privacy and of surveillance and of in particular like in the broadest sense voyeurism as just an overarching theme of the entire film I mean if you look at the poster for this film um, it's you know funny enough a sliver which by the way the the title sliver uh, as far as I know refers to uh, the building the apartment complex that the that the film takes place in um, I, I remember seeing like signage in the film or, or maybe a an address on the film or something referring to New York sliver building if I had to guess it's a uh, architectural like it's a type of architecture um, it, it's like basically just a, a narrow tall building um, so almost the entire film takes place in in this building um, but as I was saying, the poster uh, features that. It features an eye, and it features uh, our stars Sharon Stone and Billy Baldwin smooching. Looks like he looks like he's banging uh, while he's smooching, uh, but we can't see that detail. But the the uh, tagline here is "You like to watch, don't you?" Uh, with that last bit highlighted in red. Um, and voyeurism is actually ap- absolutely an element of the story and they it is highlighted several times it's not handled particularly well um but it is there and there is a sequence where the kind of the the shoe is on the other foot for a second or uh, our our main character sharon stone is placed in a position where she's able to peer into the lives of other people and while you can tell she's judging Billy Baldwin for doing that, for, for abusing his power and, and for invading other people's privacy, we also get a whole sequence devoted to her sitting in the same chair as he is in, in like the surveillance room, like looking at all the hidden camera feeds that he has throughout the entire building. And she doesn't shy away from it. And I, I want to say, especially in 2022, especially in the, the world of... OnlyFans and and live streams and just social media where people like vlogging is is not something reserved for influencers. It's it's something that a lot of people just do like without even thinking twice about it. Like in 2022, especially, I feel like any person put in her position would would hang out for a minute, would be enticed uh, by the power and the abuse of that power, uh, were they to be given the privilege of, of being able to peer into people's lives, if only for a few minutes. So that was interesting, um, but the, the main weakness of the movie is that it lacks cohesion. Um, it, it has It's well shot. It's decently well edited. Um, from an acting standpoint, everybody does their jobs. The only problem is it's very, very clunky. Um, there's some details I, I was sorely missing, like in particular... Uh, Sharon Stone's character, I felt needed some more concrete details applied to her backstory because there's illusions about her being trapped in a, a terrible marriage for seven years or something, but we don't know the details of that terrible marriage. And a lot of her decision making gets that gets very questionable uh, as the movie goes on, where things start escalating, it getting out of control, and it's and the girlfriend who is not a prude by any means. Like she, she criticizes me of, of being the prude in our relationship. 
uh, she pointed out like, wow, this lady's kind of dumb and this lady needs to figure out what she's about and what she needs or, and w- what her boundaries are because bo- boundaries are abused in this film and nobody ever seems to call any way out on any of it. And it's very strange. The writing of this film, Joe Esterhouse's writing out is weird, man. Like like the men in this movie, again, this is 1993, are very, very pushy. Um, and it, it's like uncomfortable uh, by the standards of 2022 where it's like, I, I don't, I don't think that's how you get laid these days, man. Like, like get, cool it, like, like reel it back a little bit. Like get, give the lady some space. Like, like don't smother her with, with attention and affection the second you meet her. <laughs> like, like don't change your, your, your running route in the park just to, just to head her off at the pass, uh, just so you can try to get some words in with her get some flirts in there like come on man it's a little creepy uh joe Esterhaus has a knack for writing crass and vulgar dialogue and i want to say that's that's like part of what producers were banking on being a selling point but every once in a while it just feels a little false like a little phony um there's a lot of like like water cooler chit chat at Sharon Stone's place of work it's between her and a gal pal at the office it's just like every word that comes out of this woman's mouth is is just she's she's just so goddamn horny and she just needs she just needs to talk about it like that's all she talks about at the office it's like lady you're gonna get written up maybe cool it (laughs) it's like give me some space I don't need to hear about it every fucking day um but yeah uh the movie itself as I said is is not great. I will point out um, there is some novelty factor um, in the fact that uh, William Baldwin, Billy Baldwin, I'm sorry, I I always just think of him as Billy Baldwin. Um, Billy Baldwin's character, Zeke, uh, is a video game designer in 1993, um, and he has has a bat cave. Uh, It's straight up a bat cave. Um, But most importantly, there's a couple of Easter eggs in his apartment um, that if if you're, you know, a fan of gaming uh, from this particular era, for me, like I am, I I went to the Portland Retro Gaming Expo uh, a couple of times. In fact, I went this year. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of retro games. I have an extensive Super Nintendo collection. if you keep your eyes out, uh, you'll. If you keep your eyes peeled, rather, you'll you'll find uh, you'll find some really cool Easter eggs in his apartment in the production design of his apartment. Um, most importantly, uh, you'll find a uh, a box uh, for the game Night Trap um, in the background of several shots. Um, and if you're at all familiar, I guess if you're not, um, Night Trap uh, was a Sega CD game uh, that actually was re-released. Um, it was a it was a huge technical undertaking, but as far, it was re-released, I think, uh, by Limited Run Games uh, a couple years ago, maybe. Um, the premise of Night Trap is that you you are manning like a video surveillance terminal, and you have to jump between multiple live camera feeds uh, in order to protect these uh, women. They're being attacked by these uh, hooded invaders in like a like a sleepover party or something uh so very like that was very very clever um in terms of like tying a prop in the background into the narrative because it it is almost exactly um what what william baldwin's character's up to in this film i thought that was really neat um 
but in addition to that you'll also find like he has a sid meyer's civilization on his shelf and stuff he has he has a, a sega genesis or a mega drive uh, if you're from across the pond or japan um he, he's got a lot of gaming artifacts on his wall and i i found that to be very amusing the night trap one in particular i thought was was neat that's like oh somebody in the production has actually played a fucking video game uh, which in this era of film uh, you could not be guaranteed was the case all the time <laughs> absolutely not um the ending um and also the the background of the production um so this is really really important to talk about um and i had to i had to read this uh from the wikipedia uh article uh to the girlfriend after we finished the film because the ending of this film is absolutely terrible it it is it like to use uh, my buddy Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast to use his terminology. It, it was wet noodle. Uh, sorry, I don't have the drop. Um, in my case, I'd, I'd call it just a, a fart in the wind. Um, it, it's it's a complete nothing of a film. It's an ending, it, but beyond that, it, it is nothing. Um, so point number one, uh, this movie. Uh, encountered a lot of issues with the MPAA. Uh, so I'll just read uh, the article here. Uh, apparently 110 edits uh, needed to be made to the film in order to avoid an NC-17 rating, which, um, if you're not familiar, uh, is essentially like an X rating um, and is often thought of as uh, a no-no um, in terms of your potential box office return. Basically, if you're making a film in the Hollywood system, you, you just you want to do everything you can to avoid the NC-17 because it will drastically limit um, the appeal and the the breadth of the potential audience for it. Um, so that was very, very important that they, they do whatever the MPAA asked for in order to get the thing into a releasable condition. Um, so uh, apparently... A lot of the ends, like there was rumors. I don't know if this is true. Apparently, there were rumors that the NC-17 rating came down to a display of male frontal nudity, which we're talking about. Like, there's a reason uh, we're talking exclusively about American erotic thrillers uh, from the 80s through the 90s this month, uh, because erotic thrillers are old hat in Europe, and uh, they have very, very different standards when it comes to nudity and such. Um, Americans are, are like, you know, they've got puritanical beliefs and whatnot, and uh, male nudity in particular is exceedingly rare in American films. Uh, so that that would not surprise me at all if that was true. Uh, the version of the movie uh, I watched with the girlfriend last night did not have any male frontal nudity. I will point that out. Um, and it looks like this article is confirming that as well. Um so it's actually, as far as I know, still a mystery as to what edits needed to be made. Presumably, some of the sex scenes were more graphic. And they are fairly graphic as it stands. Not on the level of basic instinct by any means. Um, Paul Verhoeven most, most certainly swung for the fences with, with the choreography and the framing of his sexy sequences. Um, I, I, I think it's not a surprise to anybody that Michael, Deg Michael Douglas just fucks harder than Billy Baldwin. Like, I, I'm 100% certain that that is true both on the screen and in real life. Michael Douglas fucks. Um, Billy Baldwin uh, makes love 
Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the sex scenes in Basic Instinct were far hotter um, than in Sliver. Um, but they are quite explicit. Uh, they are quite explicit by the standards of the day, especially. Um, but at least the like one of the last ones in the film where he's he's like <laughs> uh naked billy baldwin uh, rushes at her uh, from behind um that one is feels truncated um like like it it feels like it, it was cut back or something because there's very little to it he just kind of like gets on her and then it's all in close-up and then we fade out uh, so i wouldn't be surprised if they had to trim that or something um the ending uh, so the ending is the other major factor at play here in terms of like what this fucking film is and why it maybe isn't that great. I mean, I I don't imagine this film could have been completely a success, but I do imagine there's potentially a better version of it without, you know, uh, having to deal with the ratings board and uh, this ending that we're talking about here. So the original ending of the movie, um, well, no, the theatrical ending of the film uh, there's only like three major characters, so this is not really hard to figure out. This is an erotic thriller. It also happens to be a, a murder mystery, and we discover throughout the course of the film that Billy Baldwin is a voyeur. Uh, he owns the apartment building that Sharon Stone, Tom Berenger, and he all live in. Uh, he has hidden cameras posted in like every every room of every like apartment in the building, so he's snooping on everybody and jerking it, presumably, to everybody. Um, and he and Sharon Stone kind of fall in love, and she at one point discovers his habit and, and his scheme, and she's kind of, she's into it. Um, and the like a couple more murders happen, and the movie is leaving the door open as to like who it might be, because at that point we know that Billy Baldwin is snooping on everybody and stroking himself, to everybody but we have zero confirmation that he's responsible for any of the murders um so the conclusion of the film is tom berenger is revealed to be the killer um and then he is shot and killed by sharon stone um billy baldwin is in the room and they like mutually struggle over the gun that tom berenger brought into the room and sh she shoots him in the struggle um and then uh, some time passes and Sharon Stone looks over Billy Baldwin's surveillance tapes, which then reveal and confirm, more importantly, confirm that uh, because she's still, I guess, having doubts at this point as to whether or not Tom Berenger actually did the killings. He just seems to be guilty of it at the moment, like when she shoots him uh, because he's acting fucking crazy and he broke into her apartment with a gun. Um, but the upon rev like reviewing the surveillance footage she confirms by seeing his face on the camera that he was he perpetrated the murders um at which point she shoots all the she like blows up billy baldwin's six million dollar uh surveillance system and looks directly into the camera and says get a life credits um kind of i guess casting judgment upon the viewer of being like you watch this smut how dare you you think about that <laughs> um is you know it is an american film you know it's like hey, this this you know this this is this voyeurism will not stand it's like we have sex with our blue jeans missionary only in bed 
Only with people we're married to, goddammit. Americans have standards. I'm joking, but not really. Um, so um, that's the theatrical ending. And it's terrible. It's not really an ending. It, 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 it's so fucking flat. And on top of that, Sharon Stone's character, her characterization has been flimsy and inconsistent. And the whole time you're just like, are you kind of, are you kind of dim lady? Like, are you a little dumb or something? Cause like, like her performance is so inconsistent and the things that she's willing to go along with are so extreme that it feels like she's just being pulled along for the ride. And it's very, it has, carries a strange energy. Um, such that it's like it seems evident that the producers in particular probably just weren't comfortable with 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 a character being portrayed this way of, of being okay with as much as she's okay with um i mean remember we the the ending of fatal attraction ends with the the family unit preserved after the affair and after you know an attempted murder in their home and after husband and wife do battle uh, with with a pregnant woman and kill her in a bathtub <laughs> like that this was this was the america we were currently in, that we were in at the time uh, so the original intended ending though uh is also not great but very very different um so the original ending uh we apparently discovered that billy baldwin is in fact the killer um and he and Sharon Stone go on a helicopter. They go on a helicopter ride and they go over a Hawaiian volcano where he confesses that he was the murderer. Um, and then he ve- he veers the helicopter into the volcano and then the credits start rolling before we know if they survived or not. Now, this is an illusion. To, this is a reference to um, a line, a really stupid fucking line he has earlier in the film he has like a glass struck like a sculpture in his apartment of a volcano and he says i like volcanoes i've always liked volcanoes since i was a kid and i was like joe joey joey esterhaus that that line is like i mean i know this came first but that that's on par with i hate sand as far as writing goes where the fuck did that come from and how does that make sense? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, like, I, I, I'm not a, a woman. I'm not a heterosexual woman, so I wouldn't be able to put myself into Sharon Stone's shoes. Um, but if a dude that looked like Billy Baldwin said that to me right before he was trying to bang me, I'd just go, ugh. <laughs> it's like volcanoes, huh? Who the, who the fuck's into volcanoes? <laughs> like, get a life. Um... So yeah, uh, apparently that was the original ending. I don't know about that whole Hawaiian volcano business. That sounds completely out of left field and completely ridiculous, if you ask me. Um, but if I was to go with some of the material in that original ending, I think what makes sense to me is to have the struggle in the apartment uh, between the three characters, have everything happen the way it did, where Sharon Stone shoots Tom Berenger. And she's like, I'm not sure. Like, the girlfriend noticed this, but there's clear evidence based on the performance and the framing of the shots that Sharon Stone's doing some face acting shit where you can tell that, like, like gears are, are turning in her head after the shooting. Like, when she's doing, when she's filing the police report and whatnot, she's, you can tell that she's like pouring over the details in her head and maybe trying to confirm, like, 
did I shoot the right guy? Like, like was was Tom Berenger actually the person who did these murders? Like, did I actually do a good thing here, or am I guilty of shooting an innocent man? Like, that's evident. Like, like it's really obvious on her face that that's what she's trying to convey. Um, so I think what you would do is you would have that happen. You'd have the police investigation carry out, and maybe you'd do the scene where she goes into Billy Baldwin's uh, bat cave into his surveillance room, his surveillance camera room. And uh, instead of the, like maybe use the get a lifeline as, as like a Sylvester Stallone or, or Arnold Schwarzenegger esque, like I shot the bad guy line. Like, I think what you would do is you would have her put in the surveillance footage like watch back the recordings and then discover that billy baldwin actually did the killings and then she has to defend herself from him and then shoots him and says get a life or something i think it, it wouldn't be good like it wouldn't be great but you would have that like last second reveal where it feels satisfying i guess where it's like oh shit like it's a good thing that she she didn't let go of that like that she didn't just like go with it um and also you know I did say that that's something that the character does seem to be guilty of throughout a lot of the film. She does seem to be prone uh, to be being bulldozed by people, being like dragged along for the ride uh, by a lot of her suitors in particular. That see, that's something you could have tidied up, emphasized a little bit more. Show that like this is a a woman who maybe was trampled over uh, in her marriage and maybe lacks feels that she lacks agency and is prone uh, to being bullied um, by even by the people that she loves, especially by the people she loves. And that would be her big resolution, her big payoff, is that she has this opportunity to be happy um, with a dude if she just allows herself to remain ignorant to the fact that he's been perpetrating bad things in order to stay with her. Um, but no, instead we get her shooting some monitors and saying, get a life, like s slam into the credits. Like the credits just cannot come quicker after that. <laughs> um, as I said, the movie is competently shot and edited beyond that. Although I, maybe I need to retract that editing thing a little bit because there, there's certain elements of characterization that I, I, it, I just felt I was missing. Like, like it's a handsome movie to look at, but it's it's sorely lacking in substance and cohesion. Like, like there there are ideas at work. Uh, like I I did point out some of them, but none of it gels. Like, like very little of it amounts to anything of substance or meaning. And that's that's probably the most unfortunate thing about the film is that it just it it just amounts to a couple of hot sex scenes and and shots of handsome people in handsome locations uh but beyond that it's it's utterly unmemorable and is as i said in reference to sharon stone's filmography a little bit of a speed bump for most involved uh it's it's a movie that probably anybody in the cast and the director you could you could point to them and be like yeah like how many people in the room remember this and nobody's gonna put their fucking hand up it's like it's not a terrible film it's just it's kind of a nothing um and i thought it would be interesting to talk about at the midpoint of our no no nut november event month 
Um, because, as I said, upon further review, it seems that Basic Instinct is probably the peak of of this particular wave of of the success of this subgenre. So it's only fitting that we we follow the arc or the lack thereof, I guess, of of how things go. So this would be the beginning of the downward down downturn, I guess. So this is this is lesser than than Basic Instinct, and then the weeks to come we'll we'll cover some later uh, later in the '90s films that are not a return to glory by any means, um, but they're probably better regarded than this film. Uh, but I thought I I couldn't look past the fact that this film came out a year after the very next project uh, for Sharon Stone. Um, to go from the highest of highs to just kind of like, oh, this is where we're at now. Uh, I guess I gotta go fuck Sylvester Stallone in that shower now. <laughs> this is where we're at, Sharon. It's okay. Martin Scorsese will call you in a couple of years, and you'll be you'll be just fine for quite a while um, until you do Catwoman uh, in the two thousands. Um, that being said, um, I think that's more than enough to be said about Sliver. Um, so this was. Uh, Sliver uh, from the year 1993, directed by Philip Noyce, and of course written by Joe Esterhaus. Um, but in the meantime, folks at home, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the social medias in the form of the Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as the Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine, including Bitcade. So fucking Google it. That being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.